We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be seeing the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Calvin is up, and he's getting Bibles, so just raise your hand, and he'll bring them right to your seat. You can follow along with us, way in the corner there. And Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses this morning. Right, starting in verse 1, we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The title of my message this morning is True Happiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your church, Lord, to spend time in your word, knowing that you are here in our midst, Lord, ready to teach us, to instruct us, to draw us closer to you, help us grow in our relationship with you. We thank you for this time together. We pray your blessing upon it. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their hearts and lives completely to you, Lord. They're not born again yet. Lord, we pray that you'd especially touch their heart this morning. But we thank you for this time, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's talk about happiness this morning. Doesn't it make you feel good to know that we're talking about happiness? I mean, countless songs have been written about it. Back in 1988, Bobby McFerrin sang a song simply, Don't worry, be happy. But then to think of the verses that he has. If every life we have some trouble, when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. And got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy. And got no cash. And got no style. And got no gal to make you smile. But don't worry, be happy. So you're broke. You have no place to live. You're out in the streets. You're going to court over not paying your rent. You have no girlfriend. And all he can say is, be happy. I don't know. The Turtles in 1967 sang the song Happy Together, but three years later they broke up. (laughs) Pharaoh Williams sang that he was happy all the time. Happy, happy. Now, according to Jimmy Soule, back in 1963, he sang... If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. From my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. (laughs) Well, you're wrong, Jimmy. Okay. (laughs) Practically everyone is searching for happiness. But what is happiness? I think of the world's version of happiness. It's different than the Bible's version of happiness. The happiness in the world is dependent upon things happening. 
It hinges on things going well. If I'm in good health, if the bills are paid, if things are going my way, then I'm happy. But if something goes wrong, if, if I get a cold, if the car breaks down, if something worse happens, then I'm not happy. My happiness hinges on what's happening to me at any given moment. But the Bible gives us a completely different view of this thing called happiness. According to Scripture, true happiness is never something that should be sought directly, but it's always a, a byproduct of seeking something else. So when we are trying to be happy, when we're trying to be fulfilled, we rarely are. But when we forget about those things and we get back to the very purpose that God has placed us on this earth, suddenly we find that wonderful byproduct of happiness popping up in our lives. In other words, when we seek to live holy lives, we will find happiness. When we seek and hunger after righteousness, we'll become happy people. Because at that point, our will will be aligned with God's will as we walk in harmony with Him and the rest of our lives are in proper balance with His. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 5. We begin what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It covers chapters 5 all the way to chapter 7. Here in these first 12 verses that we're looking at this morning, it's commonly called the Beatitudes. Uh, The word Beatitude, according to Webster's, is a state of utmost bliss. And each one of these verses begin with the word blessed. Blessed blessed can be translated, oh, how happy. So be happy, oh, happy, be blessed, be attitudes. Okay, they're not do attitudes, okay, not do, do, do. They're they're, they're be attitudes. This is what you are and I are. You and I are by the grace of God. These, These tell us who as a Christian we are. It's about our character. So if you're taking notes, I've divided it into three sections. Number one. See, our attitude towards ourselves. Number two, our attitude towards the Lord. And number three, our attitude towards the world. Let's first look at verses 1 and 2. Matthew writes, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, when we see that word multitudes, we understand that it's used in a couple other places throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 14 specifically, when uh, Jesus fed the 5,000 men, we know that it was more than just men. There were women and there were children. There's possibly twelve to 13,000 people, as some Bible scholars suggest. So here we see that a multitude, a huge group of people, men, women, and children, are following Jesus. So what does he do? Well, he goes up on this mountain and taught them. Now, I'm told the traditional site of the Mount of the Beatitudes is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. I've never been there, but it's described as, as this knoll overlooking the lake. It, it, this hill slopes down to the water. It wraps around this banana uh, grove, forming an outdoor amphitheater the way it looks. And it's, it's been said you can stand on, on the ridge of this uh, you know, hill slope there and you can be heard hundreds of feet away. It's like your voice amplified there. So it's a perfect place for Jesus to speak to this large crowd. So this is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's not so much where it took place, but what was said. In the same way you've, you've come here this morning, we, I could call it the Sermon on the Pulpit. You know, it, that doesn't make sense. But, but what's being said is what makes sense. Now, notice something else. Jesus addresses the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Verse 1 says, His disciples came to him. So the sermon is for Christians. It's for us, for coming to Jesus our King. In fact, the only way to live the life of the King is in a relationship, having a relationship with the King. Now, this new 
the Sermon on the Mount is not a New Testament law or some moralistic code of behavior. Rather, it's the outgrowth or the byproduct of a life connected with Jesus, our King. Now think about this for a moment. Could you imagine what this would have been like for Jesus? He, he's been on the earth for some 30 years now, and, and you know, he, he's, he's walked, this is God in the flesh, he's, he's walking among the people week after week in kind of obscurity, and, and uh, he's seeing a people that are lost, lost sheep without a shepherd, all looking for happiness but finding emptiness. And so as he, he's be, as he begins this sermon, he goes right to their hearts. And I look around the world today, and everyone is searching for happiness, but it's in all the wrong places. Jesus' words today are as fitting for us as, he, as they were some 2,000 years ago when he spoke to his disciples. Now, let me say this before we dig in. All these Beatitudes are inter- interconnected. That is, uh, the, there's a definite progression we find them. That There's one stacked upon the other. They lead to each other one. And so this brings us to our first point, our attitude towards ourselves. Look now at verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some folks we know are just always full of themselves. You know, you, you go to talk to them and it's I this and I that and I this and I that. But the poor in spirit, it's just the opposite. To be poor in the spirit means to be humble, to have a correct attitude towards ourselves. Notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor. He's not addressing your economic situation. He's dealing with where the people are at spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Neither does he say, blessed are the poor spirited. You know, you have no backbone at all. No, he says poor in spirit. Really the opposite of what we see today. The world's attitude is just self-praise and self-exaltation. This also is not some false humility. Oh yeah, I'm poor in spirit. I'm a nobody and I I can't do anything wrong. And you're waiting for someone to say, oh no, you're really good. it's It's not that false humility. It's actually being honest with yourself. Jesus is saying, blessed or happy is the person who recognizes their spiritual poverty apart from God. Happy is the man, happy is the woman who sees themselves as they really are in God's sight, lost, hopeless, and helpless. Listen, apart from Jesus Christ, everyone is spiritually destitute, regardless of their education, regardless of their accomplishments, even regardless of their religious knowledge. We're all spiritually destitute. Some people have a hard time admitting that. And I would say, especially for men, I, I think men, it's tougher for us to give our life to the Lord because we don't want to admit that we need help. You know, I'm a man, it's a man's world, I'm a man's man, and I don't need your help because I'm... Manly, uh, and we don't want help. It's hard for us to acknowledge our need for God, that we need forgiveness, but we all do. See, the first step in fixing what was, is broken is, is recognizing it's broke, realizing it's broke. Jesus says, you will be blessed if you stop pretending all is well. The idea here is that I recognize I'm broken before God, I'm poverty-stricken, I can't make it on my own. That's how I enter, lowly, poor, and bankrupt. Which then leads to look at verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now notice it doesn't say, Blessed are those who moan. <laughs> oh, I can moan and complain, because the Bible is right there. It's my favorite verse. I can whine. Blessed are the whiners, you know. No, it's not what it says. Whiners aren't blessed, and anybody around them isn't blessed either. Mourning is different than moaning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
That kind of sounds like an oxymoron. Blessed, oh, oh, how happy are those who mourn. The Phillips translation reads, happy are the sad. Okay. It really doesn't make sense. You know, it sounds like a self-contradictory, you know, an oxymoron. But remember, all these beatitudes stack upon each other. One leads to the other. So here Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the poverty stricken in spirit. That is, spiritually, I recognize, apart from Christ, I, I, I have nothing that it, it, I could never approach God in and of myself. That's being poor in spirit. That causes, number two, to mourn over my sin, sorrowful over my sin. But I'm being blessed because I'm going to be comforted. I'll be blessed because I realize in and of myself I have nothing, so I come to God in that condition. I mourn over my sin, but I'm comforted because of the forgiveness that's going to come because of it. I think of Luke chapter 18. Jesus gives a parable about two people approaching God. One of them a Pharisee, a tax collector. The Pharisee says, you know, praise out loud. God, I thank you that I'm not like, you know, other people. I'm not like this guy or that person. I'm I'm really cool. I'm awesome. And I tithe and I give all this stuff. That's Tom paraphrase. But then it is the tax collector. Everybody hated tax collectors. And this tax collector had the right idea. He knew he was bankrupt before God. He wouldn't even lift his eyes before heaven, yet he just beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, there's a man who's poor in in spirit, a man who's mourning over his poverty of spirit. Jesus says, that man went away justified. First man didn't go away justified. He went away proud. This religious, prideful person, God, I thank you that I'm not like a lot of these other creeps around here. Hallelujah, praise God. Oh, Jesus, that guy's not justified. If you're not poor in spirit, you don't mourn over your sin. If you don't mourn over your sin, you can't be justified before God. If you are poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin. When you mourn over your sin, it brings you to repentance. And sadly, repentance is not something that's spoken of for many pulpits today in our society. But Jesus says that's how you enter the kingdom. Recognizing you're bankrupt, mourning over your sins. And that in turn turns you into a person who is meek. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let me give you a brief explanation of what meekness is. Here's a, here's a shortcut. Just take the word meek and cut it in two and you'll get the idea. Me, eek. <laughs> you, you see, in seeing who God is and how amazingly pure God is, it makes you realize I'm bankrupt spiritually. He's amazing. It causes you to mourn. And as you mourn, a part of that mourning is now you're seeing yourself in light of who God is and it creates this powerful transformation of meekness. Now what does it mean to be meek? A lot of people hear that word and, and they, they think of some sort of weakness or spineless, gutless person. As if Jesus is saying, happy are the spineless, that they'll be doormats for God. That's not what he's saying. That's not what it means. A literal translation of it means power under control, strength under control. Something that you're, you're holding back. It was originally used for riding stallions, but getting control over it. The stallion can no longer do what it wants to do, but has surrendered its will towards the rider, the master. It's strength under control, power under control. Yesterday, I, I was out looking at uh, Mustangs with my son-in-law and my, my son, and we drove by just, just to look. We just wanted to look and, and look at what they had out. And we'd went, I went home, and I was during my studies, I, I just typed in the 2019 Shelby Ford Mustang, you know, just, just looking. It's going to come out. I'm not sure when, but 760 stallion power, horsepower. 
I mean, that is fast. I mean, these cars are coming, uh, they're just coming fast. And, 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 and meekness is like having this really fast car and you're not putting the pedal to the metal. It's got all the power, but it's under control. That's the idea of meekness. And, and that's probably why God would not allow me to have one of these cars because I would not be meek with it. <laughs> you might say this. Blessed are God's gentlemen. Blessed are God's gentlewomen. They have power, but they choose to be very careful about exercising that power. It's power under God's control. Listen, uncontrolled power doesn't do anybody any good. Some people are so tightly wound that all it takes is one spark and they explode. One comment from someone and they're like this atom bomb exploding. And as a result, relationships are broken. They're devastated because of it. So to be meek is to have power, but to say, I'm I'm going to be very careful here. I'm not going to blow up. One person put it this way. It's when you idle your motor, when you feel like stripping the gears. Just let that motor idle a little bit and you're not going to get too carried away. That's the idea of being meek. I read a story of a little girl who wrote an essay for a class at school and she said this. The Quakers are very meek people. They never fight. They never yell. My mother is a Quaker. My father is not. I think of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to capture him and they had their swords drawn and they approached him and and there was Jesus. Or at any moment could have wrapped their swords around their necks. You could have just got rid of them, could have called a legion of angels down to come and take care of them. Yet yet he, he gladly went with them. See, that's meekness. It was power under constraint. He surrendered himself because he had a purpose and a plan to accomplish by going to the cross and dying for our sins. Now this brings us to verse number 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now this is a person who is really hungry. Now you say, I got this one down. I'm really hungry right about now. That's an amazing thing for me. I'm not normally a breakfast person. I'll get up, I'll have a cup of coffee in the morning and maybe about an hour or so into it, then maybe I'll get up and maybe make my breakfast burrito or something like that. But I'm good just in the morning. But if I'm still in bed, my wife starts making breakfast and I smell, you know, maybe the bacon or that sausage going, then I smell the coffee and maybe smell some fried potatoes and I start to smell that breakfast. Suddenly I don't care about coffee. I just want to get up and I want food. Bacon, yeah, food. I turn into a very hungry breakfast eater and up eating too much. But you see, that's the picture that God has for us here. He wants us to hunger desperately after righteousness. He wants us to have a real passion for spiritual things. That's what the writer in Psalm 42 was talking about when he said this in verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Oh, Lord, just just hungering and thirsting after the Lord. I think of the prodigal son. Remember, he was out there in in the pig pen starving and and he came to his senses and he returns to his father and there's this big celebration. And they have a big feast. That's because only God can satisfy the spiritual hunger deep inside our souls. Only God can satisfy your spiritual hunger. Jesus said he was a bread of life. He said he was a living water. He alone satisfies our hunger and our thirst. See, are you hungry for a holy life? Do you hunger for God's best for your life? You see, if you live for happiness, you're not going to find it. But if you live for holiness, you'll be happy. Holy people are happy people. It's a fringe benefit. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.22, 
Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, put yourself in the way of righteousness. Go after righteousness. Reach out to the Lord and you'll find your life being filled and satisfied. Now this brings us to our second point, our attitude towards the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I like the way Warren Wiersbe in his commentary, commentary puts this. He says, we experience God's mercy when we trust Christ and he gives us a clean heart and peace within. But having received his mercy, we then share his mercy with others. We seek to keep our hearts pure that we might see God in our lives today. We become peacemakers in a troubled world and channels for God's mercy, purity, and peace. In other words, our attitude towards the Lord is then reflected in our attitudes towards others. The, the, the mercy, the purity uh, that we see of our Lord, the, the, the peace from our Lord, we then share with others. See, that's why he says that in verse 7, look at verse 7, Blessed, oh, how happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, I think one of the more noticeable characteristics that we see in our society today is a, a lack of mercy. It's a merciless society. I mean, people don't really have mercy for one another, especially when it comes to politics. Everyone's seeking to destroy everyone else to make themselves look better. But here is Jesus when it comes to, saying, when it comes to how much the Lord has shown us mercy, we need to take that example and we need to show mercy to others. We're not to be condemners, but givers of mercy. Not that we're not, you know, we, we should condemn sin rather, and we should speak out against it, but that's not what this is saying. Our general take on life should be that of mercy because God is merciful. I mean, here is Jesus, God in human form, but his heart ached for that woman caught in adultery that was thrown at his feet. Jesus' heart hurt for the woman at the well of Samaria that she was rejected by everyone else. His heart reached out to, to, to Zacchaeus up in that tree who had no friends. His heart reached out to Matthew, a tax collector who was despised by, by, and considered a traitor by others. He reached out to the people because he saw behind the facade of sin was this hurting people there. So Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. May God help us to be merciful and see people as he sees them so that when they fall in mercy, we reach out and we can help them up because one of the days we may need help. We may need that mercy shown to us. And you're going to hope that there's someone there reaching out to you. The Bible says if you see a brother or sister overtaking in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore one another in an attitude of meekness, lest you yourself be tempted. In other words, you, you get down there and say, hey, let me help you up because I know what it's like. I've been there. Let me help you. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. It's doing something about it. Not only feeling bad for someone, but I want to do something to help. If I see someone broken down on the side of the road, they got a flat tire. Oh, man, that's too bad. I keep on driving. That's not mercy. If I stop by and help them change their tire, that, that's, that's mercy. It, it's pity plus action. I mean, think about the mercy that God has shown us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Psalm 103, verse 8, we're told the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So, we get the flow so far. I realize I'm poverty-stricken before God. 
I mourn over my condition. I become meek. God, I want you controlling my life. I start hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I'm changing, becoming more like my Lord. I'm growing now and now. And God is so merciful to me that now I want to show mercy to others. So then he goes on. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, how happy. How rejoiceful are those in pure heart, they shall see God. Now here's one that, that in order for us to apply it in our lives, we need to have a, a proper definition of this word heart. Because if you watch any Disney movies, you know, they'll tell your kids over and over again to follow your heart wherever it leads. That's scary because, you know, the Bible says, you know, our heart is deceitfully wicked. If we're led by our heart, it can be dangerous. Our hearts really are our emotions. If we're led by our emotions, that can be dangerous. And yet, and yet the Bible, from the Bible perspective, uh, the heart is actually the mind. It's not the emotion. The heart isn't the emotion in the Bible. Only in our Western civilization it is. We hear things like follow your heart, but what we're really saying is follow your emotions. But you see, the Bible, in the Bible, the heart is where you think. It's where you develop your your motivations. It's the seed of your will. It might include some emotions, but, but the Bible doesn't talk about emotions coming from the heart. You know where the Bible speaks about our emotions coming from? Our bowels. It's true. I mean, the Bible speaks about your emotions coming from your gut, your bowels, your intestines. In the Old Testament, uh, and, the, and rather in the Old King James Version, it says in Colossians 3.12, have bowels of mercy. When was the last time your bowels were merciful and tender? I, I don't know. Now, that's very close to what we consider to be the heart. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's speaking about purity in our, in our thought process, a clean mind. Proverbs 23, verse 7, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. When Solomon wrote to his son in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Proverbs, he said, my son, write these truths on the tablet of your heart. Get them in your mind. Write them down so you, so you know them. Remember them. See, Jesus says, from the heart comes evil thoughts and adulteries and so on. So the heart is where we think. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that word pure can also be defined as undivided. Blessed is the person, or happy is the person who has an undivided mind. See, the problem is, we go back and forth in our our minds. Our hearts are divided. You you want everything. You want your cake and you want to eat it too. You want the Lord. You want God. You want that relationship with Him. But man, the things of the world are coming in. And and man, that's looking pretty good. So I want some of these things of the world. I, I want to try and live in both worlds. You can't do that. Happy is a man that has an undivided heart. Happy is a person who's not trying to live in both worlds. Happy is the person who knows where they're going in life, that that has godly priorities and live by those godly priorities. I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. He had his priorities straight. One thing I desire of the Lord. Paul, the same way, in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, said this, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching towards, forward to the, those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, there, there's a person who has an undivided heart. One way to the Lord. And this brings us to the third and final point, our attitude towards the world and its attitude towards us. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, 
It's not easy to be a dedicated Christian in our world today. Our society is not a friend to those of us that love God. You know, it's not a friend to God's people. Whether we like it or not, there's a conflict between us and the world. And the reason for that is because we're different from the world. We have different attitudes and we want peace. You know, and, and, and peace can be experienced, but not through human means. Albert Einstein once said long ago concerning nuclear warfare, he said this, it's not a physical problem, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the weakness of the human heart. It's explosive power for evil. So we know this, and yet Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, that we're to be a peacemaker. Well, how do you do that? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Let me give you four quick categories that might help us understand. Number one, first, you, you make peace with God yourself. That, that's got to be first and foremost. You make sure that everything is clear between you and God. That's salvation. Now, I think that most of us here have done that. You've made your peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the second category, you help other people make peace with God. Now, that's evangelism. When you help people get right with God, you are now sharing the gospel of grace, helping them to do that. So number one, you get right with God. That's salvation. Number two, you help other people get right with God. That's evangelism. Here's a third way to be a peacemaker. Number three, making sure you're right with other people. So you're right with other people. Maybe something isn't right between you or a brother or sister in the Lord, and you need to do whatever you can, according to Matthew 18, to bring peace between you and that person, to, to bring reconciliation. So the first is salvation, second is evangelism, the third is reconciliation with people that you've offended or who've offended you. The Bible says, do your best. It says, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. I'm glad it says that, because sometimes, you know, you can try all you can to, to be peace with people, and they just won't have it. And then the fourth thing, to be a peacemaker, you will help other people be at peace with each other. See the four categories. When you enter into that, now you're a mediator. You're the bridge. You're helping one person who's offended another person come together by, by your words and actions. You bring peace between them. So peace with God, helping other people get peace with God, yourself peace with people, and helping other people have peace with other people. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Now Jesus says if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. You're going to find happiness, and you'll be called the sons of God. Now, it doesn't say that you shall become sons of God. It doesn't mean, oh, if I do all these things, then it's going to work my way to heaven. No, that's not what it's saying. It says people who live like that will be called sons of God. In other words, if you're really living like that, people are going to stop and take notice. They're going to go, man, by the way you act in making peace towards other people, you must be related to God. See, Jesus here is describing a life in his kingdom. He's describing those, uh, us, the character that we should have of those living in his kingdom. He's saying if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. You're going to find happiness. And you'll see that people are going to notice there's something different about you. Heaven's going to take notice. But know this, if you continue to live like this, I tell you this, hell will also take notice. And it will do whatever it can to stop you. Jesus says don't let that discourage you either. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So a happy person 
going to be persecuted. You say, I don't think I want to be that happy. Yet if you live to please the Lord, persecution's a byproduct. Remember, we all know what Paul said to Timothy. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Not if you know you live godly in Christ Jesus, you might suffer. There's some chance of some suffering. No, it's affirmative. You will suffer persecution. Because righteousness, by its very nature, is confrontational, even though you may not even say a word. Our lives preach louder than words, and when they do, that confronts the wickedness, and and there's a contrast. contrast. Jesus put it this way in John 3.20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So when you're living a godly life, you're living these, these beatitudes that we just read about, you're going to be irritating the people around you. Your very presence can be irritating. You don't even have to say anything. You can be offensive because it's, not, because it's what you stand for and who you believe and who you follow. Righteousness brings persecution. Now let me say this. Many times Christians are being persecuted not because they're living righteously, just because they're just plain weird. Okay, Weirdness doesn't count. Don't be weird. But if you've lost a promotion because of your Christian faith, if you've been singled out or harassed because you stand up for God, maybe you're, you're the black sheep of your family because of your convictions at the family, you're, you're not invited over to family get-togethers any longer. Maybe you know people that are making jokes at your expense. Oh, there's a religious freak over there. What does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you. In fact, in verse 10 and 11, Jesus uses the word blessed twice for the same thing. So it's a double blessing. Oh, happy, happy is a person that's persecuted. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 12 to say, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A a literal translation of that verse is rejoice and skip with happy excitement. Do you see the picture that Jesus is giving us here? Rejoice and skip with happiness if you've been chosen to experience persecution for righteousness' sake. Now, I'm not going to ask you when, but I wonder the last time somebody persecuted you, yelled at you, called you a Jesus freak, laughed at you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, and you went away going, yes, awesome, and you rejoice and skip for joy. And yet the question still remains, why? Why are we to be so happy because of this? Why should I rejoice and be exceedingly glad and skip for joy and be so happy when I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons we'll look at and then we'll close and we'll go into a time of communion. Number one, the first reason he tells us, he says, to look ahead. Look ahead. Jesus says, for great is your reward in heaven. If you're persecuted because you love Jesus and you're living the way it's described here by Jesus and they persecute you for that, you have a reward coming for you in heaven, coming to you in heaven. Now you just have to, you have to wait to find out what that is but it's great because Jesus says great is your reward in heaven. You know, our, our president could say, let's make America great again. That, that great has nothing to do with, with the greatness that God's going to give us a reward in heaven. It, uh, it's going to be great. Then the second thing that you, you should rejoice, not only do you have a great reward, but he says you're in great company. For, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, they persecuted Jeremiah They persecuted Daniel. They persecuted Hosea. They persecuted Habakkuk. On and on and on. Man, if you're going to live godly lives, you will experience 
persecution, and you're in great company, you have a great reward. Therefore, Jesus says, rejoice. So let's, let's sum this all up. Let's bring this all together. How are we kingdom dwellers to live in, our, in a world different than us? How do we make an impact in this world as we wait for the next? How can we see others come to Christ? We have to have the right be attitudes. We are blessed. We are happy by living as Jesus called us to live. The blessed man or the blessed woman. The happy life is found for the one who is humble, lowly and recognizes how great our God is. The blessed man or the blessed woman will be one who realizes our poverty, will mourn over their spiritual condition, but will also ask Jesus to be our righteousness for his blood covers our sins. When they rely upon the finished work of the cross and in so doing, we find that our lives are radically changed. Instead of seeking our own agenda or trying to promote our own power scheme or power base, we submit ourselves to the power of God. We're under the Lord's control. And then we discover our appetites change accordingly. We're no longer hungry for the same things we used to be hungry for. Now we really crave the spiritual things, the Lord's righteousness, resulting in finding ourselves becoming more and more like our Lord in mercy, being merciful to others. Not double-minded, but pure in heart. And as we live that way, we may incur the wrath around us. We can be persecuted, but we're going to be blessed because great is our reward in heaven. What a life. There it is. The, the, the be attitudes. All these things should make you happy. Listen, as we close and enter into a time of communion, know that God wants you to be a happy person. But more than that, He wants you to be a forgiven person. Because when you find that forgiveness, you find happiness. More than that, you find the God that loves you very, very much. And so my question to ask you this morning is, are you happy right now? Maybe you're miserable. Maybe you have everything that a person is supposed to have to be happy, but you're more miserable than everybody else. Maybe you feel guilty about being miserable because you know you should be happy and you don't know why you're not happy. Listen, the Bible says that, that God created you to know God. If you want to try find it and try and find true happiness, you want to find forgiveness, you want to find a hope of heaven. That's why you're here. And, and you have to be poor in spirit. You have to see yourself as you really are. So my question this morning as we close and enter into communion is, is what is your condition? What is your condition? Where are you at this morning? Because as we enter into a time of communion, communion is for those that have been forgiven, to those that have been born again, to those that have committed their life to Jesus Christ. And so what we do at communion is we look back at the cross. We look back at the work that was done for us upon the cross. We rejoice in that. We remember it. We bring our hearts before the Lord. So if you're not a believer here this morning, then, then it really does you no good to, to receive communion. So I'm going to ask, if you're not a believer this morning, as you pass out the elements, just let them pass by you and don't take it. Unless you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer, that you give your life to the Lord this morning and just, just cry out to Him. Tell Him, I'm nothing, Lord, without you. I'm in need of, of, of your forgiveness. I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your love. Forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. You pray that prayer. You say that in your heart. And God will come into your life and will take care of your life and forgive you of your sin. And I encourage you, do that. Receive communion with us. And for us as believers, it really is a time to, to examine our lives and see where we're at with the Lord. Now, these things that, that Jesus says is going to bring happiness. Are, are we merciful people? Are we, are we people that, that really are, are taking on the characteristics of our Lord, our character of what God has called us to be? Are we poor in spirit? Are we haughty? You know, we've lifted ourselves up. You know, is there pride in us? Whatever it is in our lives that we may be dealing with, maybe we need to confess it before the Lord. Make sure we're right. Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me for that. 
and receive communion as we, as we prepare our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Opportunity to, to share in communion together, to break bread and to share in, in, in the juice that we have here, Lord, to help us to take our minds back to that point at that Last Supper as you sat there with your disciples and they hung on every word that you said and you took up the bread and you took up the, 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 the cup, the juice. And you said, this is my body which will be broken for you. This is my blood which will be shed for the sins of all of mankind. And they partook of that and then the very next morning you gave your life for us. Your blood was shed, your body was broken for us. Lord, this is us a time for us to, to really realize what, what took place there, Lord. To realize the love that came forth from you to us. Lord, it's a time for us to come before your throne and, and just lay our, 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 our hearts there before your throne and say, Lord, we're unworthy. But we know, Lord, that you are, are the great comforter. The one that, that brings, brings great peace and forgiveness, Lord. And we can find that as we confess our sins. You're faithful, you're just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.